Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Ryan Moffitt continues our series in 1 John, where we're reminded of the life we have because of Jesus. Let's listen. 1 John chapter 5, let's read verses 6 through 12. And uh, let's go ahead and stand up together. And I was watching the uh, Netflix special called The Queen, and anytime the Queen entered the room, everyone stood up for her, and I thought, how much more ought we to do for the word of God. So thanks for standing. Let's read these passages. First John chapter five, six through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Before we look at this passage, and there's going to be some, some of you are going, what is that all about? The water and the blood? I don't get it. We're going to get there, and you'll see that I don't get it either, but we'll save that for later. I want to tell you about three interactions that I've had over the last month. So three vignettes, if you will, as we get ready to look at this passage and say, what does this mean for us? Three stories. The first story I want to tell you is an interaction that Michelle and I had with her grandpa over Christmas break. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Wilbur Shell. Wilbur is 94 years old. And over the last few years, as a man, we've, we've always known Grandpa to be one who's really unshakable in his demeanor and his posture. He was a child of the Depression. And we remember when Michelle and I just got, first got married and we were getting acclimated with her family and I was spending time with them, getting to know them. Uh, it was really interesting. He would take paper towels and rip them into quarters, and we'd get one little piece. And we're like, Grandpa, can we have the whole paper towel? He's like, don't be wasteful. And that's just how, how he is. He grew up during the Depression. But this is principled, steady, almost stoic kind of thing. But as we visited him with him over Christmas break, it was the most tender we've ever seen him. And as he told the story of Grandma and her health problems, and her beginning to lose faculty of her thinking. And days, some days, her not being able to even know, who is this strange man in my room? And Grandpa's eyeballs, guys, were wet for hours. And as we said our goodbyes from our Christmas gathering, Grandpa just held on to his granddaughter, my wife, Michelle, and said, would you pray for me? And we got to gather around Grandpa and pray for him right there. And I've been texting. He still texts at 94. I've still been texting with him, encouraging him. 
And as I left, I, I just asked the question in my own mind, is there something, is there a truth beyond rational thinking? Is there a truth beyond just trying to fix this situation or manage it with the right memory care facility? Is there something bigger that can sustain this man? Is there a bigger story? Is there a bigger truth that can help grandpa in his moment of need? Second story, shift with me a little bit from Christmas family reunion time to a dark, cold night picking up a friend here in town. And me and a buddy were in a, a truck just going to pick up a friend. And as we're doing it, we see a guy in the neighborhood approaching our car. So as good neighbors, we put the window down and we're getting ready to say hello, greet this guy. I've never seen this guy. And he proceeds to come to our car and begins to curse us out, threaten us. What are you doing in my neighborhood? And what we walked away with is this guy is incredibly paranoid. There's paranoia going on. Mental instability, probably drug-induced insanity. And as we drove away from that, we thought about the kids in his house that saw this. We were, we were picturing, what about this elementary school age girl? What is she to do? And so I, I leave that story and I ask the same question. Is there something strong enough for Wilbur? Is there something that can help this troubled man who's paranoid and addicted and mentally unwell? And the third picture is one other shift. Make this shift with me this morning. I received a text from a young woman in our church who's here this morning. And I was walking and I passed her and her husband and I, I said hello, but we didn't have a, a very robust interaction. I could tell they were a little off and, and they, they kept walking and, and we walked away and, and I got a text from her later that day and she said, sorry, we weren't able to engage this morning. We were just processing the newest update from our doctor and we found out that the cancer is far worse than I anticipated. It's moving quickly. Please pray. So what's a message? What's a word? What's something that can, can come to these people in their deepest, darkest moment of need and shift their lives? What's something that's an anchor for us in a world that we find so shifting, like shifting sand? And so we come to this text this morning, and if you probably can sense it this morning, I, I feel a little amped up about it because I keep looking at these people and I could go on and tell you more stories. And, and let's be honest, you all have these stories, right? These aren't my stories. These are our stories. And so what's something in life that can help us and shift us? Now, if we come to the, this text in John this morning, I just want to frame it up because there's, there's some complexities I want to show you. First John chapter 5, verse 19. This is the passage Steve and I keep referring to. But I want you to see it because I think it gives right thinking about how we're to see the work of God and the ministry of the church 
in the context of the world. First John 5, 19, he says this to the people he writes to. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so the first thing that I want you to see as we go into the passage this morning is that this is a, a realistic picture of the moment that we're in. And you've probably heard me say, if we don't have a good spiritual warfare paradigm, we will be overly optimistic. Things are great. If we don't have a good picture of the victory of God over evil, we'll be overly pessimistic. We'll be hopeless. And what John's doing is what I call, he's making us biblically realistic. Don't be overly optimistic. Don't be overly pessimistic. Be biblically realistic. Because the the, the lead into these verses that we're going to look at this morning is in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And so I think what John is doing is as he's writing this letter and as he's wrapping it up, he's launching the people of God with what I call a victory speech. He's giving a victory song and he's doing it in the context of a contested space where we lie in the power of this place called the world and the world lies in the power of who? Satan. Okay, so here's the victory. Chapter five, verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so John bakes into his epistle, I would call it an echo of John 16, where Jesus himself says this, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have what? Overcome the world. So as Jesus overcomes, so too the followers of Jesus overcome. And so here's how this is supposed to be working in our mind and in our, in our psyche. We're to actually have a paradigm of victory. We are not to be a people that's like, uh, it'd be great if we win, but we, we might not. You guys remember uh, when your kids were little? Remember with your boys wrestling them on the ground when they were like five? Anyone do that? Anyone still, any grandpas do that? Okay, it's hard, yeah. Like, pray for Greg's back. I mean, my goodness, right? Remember pretending that they were gonna beat you? Did any of you ever think man, I hope I get, can really take my five-year-old out. I mean, we'll see. I mean, some of you guys are like, I'm not very strong. Okay, but that's other. When you know that you're gonna win, there's a lot of joy. When you know that you've received the victory, that you are part of the people that overcome, when you know the end of the story, you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to live with a plaguing anxiety. My grandpa doesn't have to live with a plaguing anxiety. 
He's overcome because he's in Christ. You don't have to live managing and controlling every detail. You're part of Team Jesus. You have overcome. And so this victory that John sees, it's actually, if you go back in First John, John 2.14, such a cool passage. This is one I pray for our young men. He says this, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Wouldn't it be great if our young men today lived with the reality that they've overcome the evil one? Think about how our young men are being blessed. And John says, I write to you young men because you are strong. I get the joy of coaching sixth grade basketball. And one of the things that I love doing is psychologically helping young men believe they are strong. Our world wants to make young men weak. And as the church, as the people of God, we get to say, you are strong. And so John wants his readers living from the security that in Jesus They have overcome, they've won. And when you start living your life, realizing I've already won, guess what? You have nothing to fear. Why? You won. How come you won? Because Christ won and you're in Christ. You have nothing to lose, why? Because Jesus already lost it all to buy it all back. And you're in Christ, therefore you receive what he receives. So as we go to this passage this morning, this is John drilling into this victory, okay? So you guys ready? Let's break it down and let's see what this is all about, the water and the blood and the spirit. You guys ready? Let's go. This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now think with me for a second. Let's think about the gospels. Let's think about how Jesus shows up in the gospels. Let's think think of the book ends of Jesus's ministry. And let's say, how did Jesus show up? What were the key events in Jesus's life that would lead John to say the water and the blood? First event in most of the gospels where Jesus shows up, the first thing that happens for Jesus is Jesus's That was really confusing and weird. (laughs) Starts with a B. Jesus says, baptism. Okay? So Jesus shows up in most of the gospel accounts. There's a public baptism. And in the baptism of Jesus, the proclamation, there comes a voice from heaven, and the voice says, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is is one of my favorite gospel stories. And the reason it's one of my favorite gospel stories, specifically in, in both in Matthew and Luke's gospel, the narrator, Matthew and Luke, put the baptism of Jesus before the temptation account. It's really interesting. 
And, and, and so in the temptation, that's when Jesus goes out and overcomes Satan. And we see the strategy of how he does that. But before that ever happens, we hear this voice from heaven, this is my son with him, I am well pleased. In the point of the narration of Matthew and Luke's gospel is this, before Jesus ever does anything to gain the father's approval, the father gives him his approval. He doesn't live trying to get an identity, he lives from an identity. And so the baptism of Jesus is, is this, it's the messianic identity. It's the beginning of Christ's announcement that this is Messiah. So that's the front end, he came by water. By the way, lots of important stuff in the Bible happens around water. There's a lot of salvation, a lot of deliverance through water. It's a big theme in, in the Bible. So he came by water, but he also came by what? By blood. And we know the key moment of Christ's life is the cross. His blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He came by blood. Now look what John says at the end of verse six. He came by water and he came by blood, not by water only. Do you ever read your Bible and they go, huh? That is so strange. What, what, what is John doing? Well, I think what he's doing is this. There's a view of Jesus in this early church. This is what, 30, 40 years after Jesus. So this is, a, this is like, Jesus shows up, boom, and early on in the church, in church history, there are bad views of Jesus. So I think this is what's happening. I think there's a view of Jesus, it's called Gnosticism, that says all the, you know, the, all the ethereal, happy, good stuff that happens, the spiritual stuff, the voice from heaven, that's all good. But like the bloody part of, of Jesus, that stuff's bad. The physical stuff is bad. And so what John is doing is he's going back and correcting and saying, no, it's actually not spirit Jesus, good, physical body Jesus, bad. He's saying, no, no, those have to come together. Messianic identity, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. Messianic vocation on the cross, fulfilling the Father's plan. Those things have to come together. He didn't just come by water, he came by water, he came by blood, and one without the other, you don't have a full gospel. And friends, there's stuff going on today in the church, this heresy that it doesn't really matter if Jesus died, it matters. Paul's gonna go on to say, both related to his cross, but also his resurrection, if this is all a fairy tale, it's worthless. You're still in your sins. Let's pack up and go home. This is a waste of time. It's either water and blood or it's nothing. So John is correcting an early heresy in the church. Verse seven, for there are three that testify The spirit, the water, and the blood. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you might say something like, man, I, I really wish God would speak to me. Man, if I, if I really knew that God was real and I knew, really knew he was showing himself through the Bible and through scripture and through the, like, I, I, I really wish God would speak to me. And what I want to tell you this morning is that's exactly what John is saying. So oftentimes we think of ourselves as witnesses for God to the world. John's saying, no, 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 no. God is a witness for himself to the world. And there's three witnesses. The historical events of Christ's baptism, the historical event of Christ's cross. You will find any good historian talk about Jesus of Nazareth crucified. That's, that's a historical fact, okay? You can read Josephus, he'll talk all about it. The unique part of the Christian faith is what is the meaning of that event? It's the meaning of that event that has, that's where the controversy comes. So John's saying there's actually two historical events, Christ's baptism, Christ's cross, those are witnesses, witnessing to the world. Has God spoken? He's spoken definitively through Christ. He has spoken clearly. But the third witness is the spirit. Some of the language Steve's used quite a bit as we've taught through 1 John, uh, it's, this, it's this language that we have a, uh, we have a, I, what's the language you use? Uh, uh, yeah, objective truth. See, I knew, I'm so glad it's, it's in the front row. I might lose it. We have an objective truth, historical events, but John wants our objective truth to become a subjective reality, a subjective experience, a subjective community. So he's, he points to these three witnesses, Two of them are objective, water and spirit. The third witness is what? Sorry, water and blood. The third witness is the spirit. That's the subjective witness. Have you experienced the objective reality of who Christ is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning? Has the Spirit of God confirmed to your spirit? Because what the Spirit wants to do, Romans chapter eight, by his Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. You know what the Spirit wants to do? Sometimes we get all weird about like the Spirit and we, it's like the Spirit wants to do all this weird stuff. Spirit can do whatever he wants. But one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to affirm and confirm your identity as a child of the Most High God. You should be experiencing confirmation that I am a son or I am a daughter of the Most High God. And so the Spirit wants to make the objective subjective, so we would have an experience of who Christ is. Larry Crabb puts it this way. He says, I assume the spirit 
is always whispering Abba to God's children, assuring them that they are safe in his care and he is continually calling them to become what God saved them to be, solid people, indestructibly alive, hurting perhaps, but consumed with pleasing the Father. Church, that should be a lived experience for us. The Spirit should be giving us that indestructible, overcoming, lived experience of victory. So John goes on in 1 John chapter 5, and he says this in verse 9, if we, look, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. He's saying, look, you've, you've received instruction and ideas and ideologies of the day and everyone's hot take and everyone's truth claim. He's like, you're, 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 you're really reticent to listen and receive ideas from men. He goes, if you receive ideas from men, what about ideas from God? They, they're probably a little better. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. You, if you're in Christ this morning and you've received the testimony about who Christ is, you become an agent of that testimony. You have the testimony, John says, in himself. You have it in you. And how did the early church with a few hundred people overthrow a government? How did they overthrow Rome in less than 300 years? How did that happen? They had a bunch of people that had the contagion. They had, a, they had a church on fire just, and it was actually the spreading of the gospel, one voice to another, one soul to another. It's in himself, so you have it in, in you. But here's the bad news. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If you don't have the son this morning, you don't have life. I don't care how much you think you have life. If you don't have the source of life, you don't have life. Jesus said some pretty controversial things. And he said in Matthew 10, you can gain the whole world. You can have the, the, the job, you can have the business, you can have the success. You can have the good-looking family. You can have the really cool cars. You can have the vacation house. You can have all of it. You can gain the world, but you can forfeit your soul. Jesus went on to say, he who finds his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So the core passage, the core idea this morning is about life. It's about eternal life. Verse 11, this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, oftentimes, we look at this eternal life and we go, oh, that'll be great one day. Yeah, I, I better get that. Make sure I get that done before I die. That would be, so figure out when I'm going to die and just, you know, throw in a little conversion. But that's not how the Bible talks about eternal life. Okay? That might be some of the ways our, maybe our bad theology talks about it. But look at John 17 with me for a second. Because this is what John has in mind as he's writing this in 1 John 5. John 17 is the high priestly prayer This is Jesus given everything he has before he goes to the cross. His last words. His last words are lasting words, right? John 17, verse 3. Jesus is going to define eternal life. And this is eternal life. You guys ready? What is it, Jesus? That they know you. That they know you, the only true God. And that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not a duration of time primarily in scripture. It's primarily a relationship. So if you have the son, you have eternal life. And when do you have it? Today. Today. And here's here's where this moves away from this idea of I better get eternal life so I can get saved one day and you know, That'd be really great. And if I can float in the clouds and play harps and it'll be awesome, okay? Friends, we live in a world that is so detached from the source of life while simultaneously trying to create the mirage of life. Do you know what I mean? Where people are so devoid of meaning, purpose, intimacy. They're so devoid of relational connection In fact, I read recently that actually it's up to like 60-some percent of men would say, I don't have a friend. So sad. We're living alone, totally addicted to these things. Me, myself, and I, I curate my experience on here the way I want it. And Jesus comes into this confused world and he says, look, life, you want life? I want life. Cool. You can know me. And if you know me, you have life. You actually have eternal life. You have eternal life. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life today. It has begun. I'm going to end today by showing you a clip. And this clip is interesting because uh, this movie, first thing I want to say about this movie is I, I watched it when I was in high school. And I was looking at the clip today and I thought, wow, I'm old because it was grainy on the clip. Um, but this clip it is, sums it up to me because what, what you're going to see in the movie, Mr. Holland's opus, is Mr. Holland has spent his whole life trying to find life. I'm going to write the great symphony. I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remake this school and I'm going to make it amazing and I'm going to become this great, famous teacher and composer, and all of the things he runs to, it's a mirage. He gets there, mirage, and he gets there, and it's a mirage, and nothing in his life can, it's all going right through his fingertips. It's like sand just falling out. And in the middle of this, him and his wife, 
have a child, Cole. Now, if you're a music teacher, what's the worst fear in the world that your child would be what? Unable to hear. And so Mr. Holland and his son Cole just have this horrible father-son relationship. In his whole life, he's trying to make life work. He's trying to find life. He's trying to find intimacy. He's trying to make a name for himself, and it's all falling apart. And at the end of the movie, he's getting cut from his position as a teacher after all these years. They can't even fund him anymore. That's, that's how awesome his dreams were. I'm old and jobless. And this is the last performance that he'll ever do as the music teacher. And by the way, he struggled with learning sign language to connect with Cole, but you're, you're going to see what happens when you find life. Richard Dreyfus figured out that I was, Mr. Holland, excuse me, figured out I was made for a person. And until I find that person, it doesn't matter what I get in life. Friends, you were made for a person. That person is Jesus Christ. And if you have the son this morning, you have life. So back to my three people. Wilbur, you have life. And you have it now. And to this brother that I don't know who was accosting us, I'm praying he would have the son. Because if he has the son, he has life. To my friend whose body is failing in her 30s, she has life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for that we were made for a person, Jesus, and that we were made for a place, the new heavens and new earth. And in this day where there is struggle, the world that lies in the power of the evil one, death and decay are real. Sadness and brokenness and broken relationships, that's very much a part of our experience. But because of you, Jesus, you overcame it all. You despised sin and shame. You overcame by the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Christ that gives us a hope, a joy, and a future. So God, I pray for each person today, any that don't know Christ, that they would come today to have life, life in your son. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.